best show. Begin now. Hello and welcome back to NXT, the next best show. This is your host, one of your hosts, Tom Romberg. As always, here we are again from three different states. We're going to switch it up today. Nick Richter over in Wisconsin. How are you doing? Who's your shout out this week? I'm doing pretty good, Tom. Um, I shout out this you week. You sound like it. <laughs> As every week is just a quick reminder, Houston Astros still cheaters. Um, seems like we're starting to get this coronavirus thing figured out. And there's talks of the MLB season starting to get put into place. Timelines are starting to be made a little bit. Guesstimations, I guess. Guesstimated timelines yeah. um, are being put in place. But we need to remember that when this season comes back, I'm assuming it will. So when it does, the Houston Astros still cheated. We still need people banging trash cans out at any away games they have. Try to sneak them into home games if you can. Bring Gotta your signs that. in so that they can steal your sign. Yep. Everything. Yep. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we have to celebrate every week. Nick Richter, the fearless leader of the don't don't let us forget that the Astros are cheaters. So thank you, Nick, for bringing it up yet you know, again. I, I've seen very few tweets about people talking about the Astros cheating since this whole thing went has happened. So true, just got to remind everyone that. Yeah. So thank you, Nick, for keeping everyone vigilant. Um, over in Illinois, as always, Xavier Sanchez. How are you doing, Xavier? And who's your shout out this week? I'm doing. Just dandy. Uh, this week, a non-sports one. We're giving it to Jack Dorsey, who gave a billion dollars, roughly 28% of his net worth, to I have to bring up the net worth. Uh, to a relief fund for the COVID-19. So that's big deal. Huge deal. A billion dollars, largest like single number, but also huge part of yeah his worth. Twitter, Twitter's Jack, um, yeah, with a huge amount of money being given out. Incredible move. Um, and, I mean, anyone who's giving any money to help COVID-19 relief or coronavirus relief is obviously doing something incredibly important. But, yeah, a billion dollars is insane. All right. And then I'm over here, Tom Romberg in Iowa, um, as always, haven't left. Um, and I, my shout out this week, we'll get into it later, but the Bulls, I have to shout out the Bulls cause they finally did something right. Um, and fans like are actually excited about this. So, um, they hired a new executive GM or assistant executive, um, to help hire more people. Executive VP of basketball operations, I think is his title. Um, but, uh, yeah, it seemed like a good move. We'll talk about it more. Um, actually coming up right now but um i just want to give the bulls a shout out because they deserve it they finally did something right and i don't want to let that i don't want to let that go unnoticed so getting into the show we're gonna have some basketball baseball football we got kind of a full show and then at the end we'll throw in we just did today this morning an interview with greg gumbel uh loris grad um broadcasting legend so um we'll have that interview for you guys it's an incredible interview i thought it he'd I mean, he gave us some incredible stories, and he just kept talking. It was awesome. Um, easiest interview I've ever done, I think. Um, and so we'll have that. But first, back to basketball. we got a lot of sports to talk to talk about. So first, with the Bulls, um, they signed uh, – Xavier, do you know how to pronounce this guy's name? 
I actually do not. I think it is. I'm going to butcher it, but it's I like, don't You're asking the one numbers. guy that can't pronounce anything to pronounce the Xavier, name. Xavier doesn't know how to pronounce much, but okay, I'm going to try it. Arturis Karnasovas. No offense. Yeah, I think you're pretty close. That's definitely we're, how you say his first gonna, name. Yeah, we're going to go with that. He's sure. He's formerly, um, he, they hired him as the executive vice president of basketball operations, which was needed. Um, he's, he's kind of coming in. Uh, to serve a role in restructuring the front office, which has been needed for a long time, and uh, kind of helping put the Bulls back on track. Maybe they'll actually have a plan going forward, like they'll actually know what they're trying to do. Um, so that's much needed. He he was um, on the he was a member of the Denver Nuggets organization, which famously had an incredible deal getting Doug McDermott, um, moving Doug McDermott, and. Uh, the Bulls just kind of got fleeced in, the, in a whole deal with the Nuggets there. So um, pretty pretty big deal to get someone that has shown um, a little bit of competency in the front office. Uh, and the Bulls have someone like that now. Pretty exciting. Xavier, big Bulls fan, how are you feeling about this? Uh, first off, in Woj's tweet, he mentions uh, how he's tasked with hiring a new GM and reshaping the front office. I would like to add that he should also fire the coach first and foremost. We definitely, yeah, for we all things to work, in there anymore. we need him to fire that guy. Um, I think any move away from the Gar Pax regime is great news. So uh, I'm excited for it to work out. Uh, he seems to have a solid track record as well uh, in his young time. And Nick, um, as a Bucks fan, are you now terrified because the Bulls are back on track? They're going to win the East next year, so obviously you're worried. I just want to hear your thoughts. Um, shaking in my boots <laughs> is uh, the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, this um, is supposed to be the time for the Bucks, and now the Bulls are creeping back in. Exactly. Yep. One higher changes everything. It does. Um, it's a domino effect. I'm terrified. You tip the first domino, so watch out. The first domino has fallen, and every show that there's another domino falling, we will bring it up because it's gonna it's gonna happen. The rebuild is happening at the highest. I don't want level. you guys to get your hopes up too high though, because nope. I feel like hopes the incom- up. Yeah, I can tell it's already <laughs> way too high. Too late. The organization's incompetent, so they'll get rid of this guy if he tries to do anything drastic, and he needs to make drastic changes. Oh, no, no. Exactly, he needs to. That's why they brought him in. They're gonna make drastic changes. And he's no, the they'll one fire to him it. if he tries. To. No, 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 no. Right, I'm, no. I'm warning you right now. <laughs> Uncle See, Jerry Reinsdorf only makes one move guys. every 20 years. <laughs> so the Bulls know that they need to do something until 2040. All right. Um, more in basketball news. Uh, and oh let's wait, just end before up. we move on, our hopes, I saw... our hopes are not too high. I want to make sure that's mentioned. Yeah. Uh, one last thing. Uh. Arturis, he played for the Lithuanian Olympic team against the Dream Team. I saw a really cool thread. It was like a newspaper clipping of like the, the Lithuanian team got destroyed like 126 to 76 when they were playing them. But there's a picture of uh, Arturis on the sidelines with like a mini little camera, uh, like when you would go and get developed, taking photos, not of his team of the dream team he was so excited to be able to play even though the team was getting crushed there's him on the sidelines taking pictures well, that, of the amazing team that's because he knew how good that team was he's an expert scouting uh 
per- person, and he knew That's what he was doing. Even so even back then, he even knew he was seeing greatness. Now he, now he has that in his head, and he's going to see it again. So we've got something coming. Hopes are not too high. Moving on, um, the 2020 Hall of Fame class was announced. The headliners, of course, and none of these are surprises, Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett. Um, I mean, it's almost hard to even talk about this because it's so clear that these three were going to get in. Um, but it's kind of crazy that this is like the guys that are being – put into the hall of fame. Now, these are guys we remember, um, and watched like bigger than larger than life guys. So, um, any takes on seeing these guys get inducted into the hall of fame? Uh, yeah, as, as expected, I thought all of them would be first ballot. I'm forgetting some of the other names in there, but I was somewhat surprised to see, uh, Chris Bosch not included. Chris Bosch definitely has, the resume, but I think they're they're he'll get voted in eventually. But they like to go with a few p- amount of people every time they vote people in. So those obviously were the three highlights. Uh, definitely <laughs> all but uh, both Kobe six rings, Tim Duncan five, and we can't forget. Uh, even though he's won one, it seemed like they won a million. Kevin Garnett with the Celtics. Uh, has a solid career. True. Probably would have won True. in Minnesota, but he was done dirty there. Nick, anything? Um, not not a ton. Um, obviously Kobe deserved to be put in it. And as much as I'm, I, I don't know, with everything that went on with Kobe, uh, this past year, I, th- I don't know. I, I almost wish they had like a separate ceremony or something to put him in. I I don't know. Yeah. Maybe no, it's just because I'm a I huge Kobe fan, but I feel like he's done so much to grow the game outside of the U.S. too. Because he he's like an like a huge he was he's like a hugely ass, international so. star. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Huge in China, huge in the Philippines. He I know he does a lot in both those uh, countries. I was going through and like throwing out some old newspapers as I was as I was catching up on reading them. And I totally forgot it every day. It's still weird seeing the one with him uh, saying he passed away. If you guys looked mm-hmm. up, you would see it. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. Crazy. I was just reminded that he passed away this year. Every now and then I like to forget and then I'm like. Well, I mean, 2020 has had enough um, tragedy, so it's hard to remember all of it, unfortunately. Anyway, moving on. So, yeah, the 2020 draft class stacked with those three. Moving on to um, LaMelo Ball and the future uh, of the NBA. Before we go into that, really, sorry to cut you off. Uh, Do you guys have any specific moments of any of those players that you remember uh, watching? Like, you guys, I don't know how big a fan you were of any three of those, but did you have any connections with them, just as a fan? I mean, I just remember Kobe being, like, the first player I watched, like, can remember. And I think we talked about that on the show after he passed away. But, like, Kobe was, like, the NBA player when when I, like, started watching basketball. Um, the other two, not specifically, I remember them more, more from playing backyard basketball on the computer. Um, they like, I think it was 
Kevin Garnett was like one of the big names on that, and so I remember him from that. Oh yeah, uh, I, I had the same having game him on. Yeah, and like I feel like that was almost more where I got exposed to him than than actually watching him play. Um, but yeah, nothing nothing like also, sticks out other than like, the move, highlight. Bold move to have KG as your as your poster boy for backyard. Yeah, sports. true. <laughs> A, guy, a notorious smack talking guy who definitely wasn't wasn't a big for the for the kids guy. Yeah. Hey, he's a legend. To put him on the kids game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, moving on to uh, the future of the NBA, Lamelo Ball, um, who is expected to go in the first round in the lottery of this year's draft, he purchased. Um, with his manager purchased the Illawarra. I don't know how to pronounce it. The Hawks, the NBL team that he plays for. Mm -hmm. um, However you pronounce the team name, um, he purchased with his manager, the team that he plays for in the NBL currently Um, kind of a wild thing. Like just a a wild, not like a wild move. I think it was like, I mean, it's a business decision and I think it was kind of smart, but it's just crazy to think that a guy playing for the team who's also only 20 years old and about to go to the NBA has purchased an NBL team now. um, And just shows like the ball family, like they are making moves all the time. Yeah. I'm not too sure. Uh, I think the, the point of it was to help like just in case the league was to fold or whatever the team, there would be some support there to help make it through this process. And it is pretty crazy. 20 years old owns a team. Uh, I saw uh, some guys were debating on I don't even know what show. uh, Would this distract them from his NBA career once it gets started? And some of their uh, things they argued were so goofy. Like they're like, what if the team needs to make a trade or do something? And it happened. Like the time I changed in between the two places. He's like. Uh, in between games and he's like resting are they just gonna call him but i'm sure there's people that will take yeah. care of yes yeah. you can he own a team without team. being the head decision maker like there's so many owners of a team they're not gonna be calling Lamelo ball to make all these decisions i can't believe the well i i, I wish i remembered what show but these guys are, have been in those positions for a long time how do you not re- recognize that there's people for those moments and he's just kind of at t- most likely going to be just the money behind it. And it, it should not be a reason to not draft them high. Yeah, no, I don't think so at all. So basically there's two reasons that I think he does this. Um, and I think they both have to go somewhat hand in hand on how he's able to afford this. So either the team is going bankrupt and they're just going to dissolve. And he got it like dirt cheap, or he oh that that I guess that's the first step is clearly so he's saying that he wants to uh, make sure his teammates like still have jobs and like yeah. get paid and whatnot. So that's a solid PR move. That's step two. I'm gonna go back to step one now. Obviously, this league is somewhat struggling, or the te- that team is somewhat struggling financial wise, financially, whatever it's called, financial wise. Right? Am I wrong? Do you guys think the same thing? How else can he afford this? Yeah, he's no, nineteen I think, years old. Yeah. Um, I think I think it has to partly be uh how low, like how um 
like low value the the company or like the, the team is currently and just the league in general i think every sports league is suffering especially um like over like in the the european leagues and all the teams overseas i even saw some um english soccer teams they were talking that the leagues and teams just might not exist after this some of the teams because they just can't survive um not having revenue and not having anything. So I think that's definitely a situation because a lot of teams are facing it, that he was just able to, um, you know, afford it at this time. And I'm sure there's some, I mean, the money is coming from somewhere, but um, yeah, I think there's no way he would have been able to do that without it being, um, and it's not like he's the number one owner. Like there's definitely um, pieces that he's owning, but it's not like he's the, the head owner. Right, which leads to my second point that is is there a better time or place to buy that team right now and say that you just want to give your guy like make sure your guys stay paid? That's like that's such yeah, a good no, PR I would move. Say, yeah, such a great move. Yeah, I agree. But I, I wouldn't say that it was like he only did it for PR. I think there can be other like I don't know. I think there could be other reasons just specifically because like it's an investment that he can that can pay off in the future. Like anything you can find this low, like we keep talking about, we get into the stock market right now because like everything is so low. That's the mm-hmm. same with with a team. Right. We just don't have that kind of money. But like if you can get a team that cheap, like if you can be a common owner of that team that cheap, why not do it? Like it's a good investment. No, I agree. Yeah. Um. One of the things I like with LaMelo, um, even though everyone has been so negative about the balls and the just throughout the point just because the dad's loud and people don't want to like realistically think that he's got he has three somewhat talented sons various levels obviously but um it lamellos always seem to stay quiet and just stayed the course he's not vocal on social media like he has social media but he's not overly loud on what he posts or shares or when he speaks to media he's not uh he comes from uh like what he talks about is pretty reasonable and only one I mean, the best for him that way. he can do Lonzo and, this was and Angel are both that I way think, yeah, i think all of them but he seems to be just kind of let his uh game on the court show the most i do think it helps yeah. that lavar is taking a step back from his yeah and i think we saw I that agree. when Lonzo was in the draft, everyone was like, is it worth drafting him if you're going to have to deal with his dad? Once he got drafted, no one even paid attention to his dad, really. Like, for a little bit they did, but he stepped back and it all kind of went away. And all the kids are, qui- like, quiet guys. Like, obviously, Leandro had a little bit of that trouble in China, but um, they've all, they're all quiet. They're all, like, they're responsible on social media. They're, they're just – they want to play basketball, and I think – uh, their dad kind of brought them into the light and like made them popular, but their basketball is the reason they're still popular. It's not, it, it, they're able for their dad to step away and them to still maintain right. their, their right. celebrity because they're good basketball players. So I don't think there's teams really looking at uh, LaMelo the same way they're looking at Lonzo thinking like, oh, is this going to be a risk? I think they know how good he is and they're not, they're not worried about his dad because that just hasn't been a thing lately. So, right. yeah, I don't think I don't think any team is really worried about it at this point, uh, it, uh, worried about like the media involvement. LeVar takes a step back and just really lets the kids kind of show off what they want to do, which is play basketball. And I yeah. think that's a positive thing all around, because yeah. not only are they not, it's much less of a distraction. They don't have 
whatever that show was, Ball in the Family, where they have a TV crew following them around. It's, just, it's a less, it's less, less. Is it still going? Mm. As of like a few months ago, it's still less. I haven't checked in a while, but it was still being filmed. I mean, shout out Grant, because he used to watch that all the time, but... You know, I used to go back and forth. I, I, we, we would text about it sometimes. Yeah, so Xavier I, would watch it, too. Oh, geez, Xavier. And then I tapped out. For, I, I think... I don't know how they do their seasons, but I think they're on, like, season six. Anyway, yeah, I mean, they've all kind of taken a step back and, and just let the game talk for itself. Mm-hmm. Let's move on um, into baseball now. Um, there's been Xavier. Do you want to tee up this this uh, proposal? Um, you uh, had that uh, pulled up. We talked about it earlier. Yeah. So uh, the other night, I think it was Tuesday night. Jeff Jeff Pass then came out with a report saying uh, teams and the league are looking at a return to baseball in May. And they would exclusively be playing in Arizona in the post. It talks about it wants to be backed by federal health officials that could have players in training camps. Um, I don't – people were all very excited, like baseball is back. I don't think we're going to see baseball May. I don't know if we'll even see baseball this season because I don't think – I personally don't think anything – whether it's sports, uh, any other type of gathering, should be brought back until we know more and the COVID-19 comes to an end in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, so Kirk Herbstreet said today that he doesn't even think that college football will be back next year. Yeah, I heard about that too. So so if that's not coming back, baseball doesn't have a chance. So I want to bring this up then. Um, Yesterday or today, I think it was – uh, the poll came out uh, a nationally, um, like, was it Seton Hall uh, did a poll nationally of sports fans saying 61% of them said they would not attend a sporting event until there's a vaccine um, available. So I think even if we bring sports back, are we going to see, I mean, I guess maybe it's just assumed that once sports come back, we're already, we're just going to be doing sports um, with no fans in the crowd. We're just going to get the the game back. Do you guys think it's worth um, following this plan, having them basically all in one state doing like away from their families and stuff um, just so that fans can have the sport again so they can watch? Is, Is it worth bringing sports back that much just so we can see, um, like, is it worth putting the players through that just so we get the game back, even though we wouldn't be able to attend? Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, a lot of these guys, uh, families, I don't think any of them really want to be away from their families. I know various players, uh, Mike Trout specifically, and, and some of the, I think Garrett Cole, some of these other guys are supposed to have kids in the next couple of months and their first child as well. And I don't think any of them want to miss out on being there for uh, those moments. Uh, I agree with Xavier. I don't really see... I don't see a way that this can go down where if one person catches it, they don't all get like they don't all get it in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. That paired with if 
I don't. It just seems like a lawsuit waiting to happen if someone gets sick because you're bringing them all together, mm-hmm. even if they are like either testing needs to be done. Like, I guess here's a way that I think it could be done is apparently they have like 15 minute tests now. If you just test the players, test all the players, all the umpires, all the staff that are going to be at these games to make sure they run smoothly. Yeah. They all test and pass. Then I guess go ahead and play it. But but there's if, always no that's tests. That's going to be 100%. a lot of work. And, and no, no yeah, tests, right. No tests. They 100%. they are like reporting highly, like 98, 99 accuracy and and sensitivity. But that doesn't mean that clearly means it's not perfect. So just one person has a false positive or a false negative. I mean, and uh, right. you could end up getting everyone sick. So. I feel like that it's just going to be tough for them to to do it. And I guess that question, the way you answered that question, kind of answers my next question. But Xavier and I were obviously looking forward to um, the game in August that was scheduled to be played in Dyersville, Iowa, at the Field of Dreams. Um, the The White Sox were going to play the Yankees at the Field of Dreams. They're building a new stadium, eight thousand seat stadium, to have a game. The first that would be the first professional baseball game ever played in the state of Iowa. Um, it's supposed to be a huge deal. Xavier and I were at the Field of Dreams September 1st uh, doing um, a show f- or some some video stuff and uh, were excited about the – they were obviously talking about it then and they're continuing to talk about it. But if the season doesn't get played or if there's no – if there's games being played in Arizona or even if they're playing games but fans aren't allowed to go, there's no reason to hold an event at the Field of Dreams because – the whole point of it is to bring fans to the Field of Dreams. To they were gonna have a full weekend of activities, um, like a like a carnival basically, um, and then the game would be played. And there's supposed to be that would be a huge thing for Iowans to get to witness, for White Sox and Yankees fans, for just like the people just who want to experience. Baseball fans in general, that. that's such a cool place. Yeah, uh, such an amazing uh, place, such an amazing event. It, there would be no reason to put that on if fans aren't allowed at the game. And, you know, with the fact that we don't think they'll be at, they'll be, there'll be a situation where they can get, um, fa- like confirm that no one has, uh, the virus. I don't think we see that game, which is unfortunate. Um, but I don't think we see that game this year. Hopefully we get to see it next year then. Um, but yeah, it's just something we have to deal with, but it's kind of sad for how awesome the field of dreams is. And, um, for how like monumental this occasion would be, it's going to be sad, like kind of seeing August go by and it not happening. Um, but yeah, it's as for now, they haven't postponed it yet or they haven't canceled it yet. But I don't think we're going to see it because I don't think we'll see baseball at all. Um, and if we do, it won't be the way it's expected to be for that event to take place. I mean, it's crazy when you go back and think about us complaining about losing March Madness. We're going to lose entire seasons. Yeah. I mean, we might not get football. Like, yeah. So that's like such a minuscule thing that we were so upset about. But looking back on it, it's like, what? That the conference tournaments weren't going on. We're like, why are (laughs) they canceling these? And then we're like, well, they'll still play March Madness, obviously. They can't cancel that. They can't cancel that. I mean, you you think about it. If If they put football back. Then, then we're getting into the winter again, where the virus is expected to increase again. Worse. Yep. I mean, we might miss another bas. I don't want to say it right now, but we might miss another basketball season. It's possible. As we might be without sports for a, a year time. to a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to think about that, but it's possible. Because I mean, how do you even? 
I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know what that world looks like without that. Because sports news will keep happening, but eventually it's going to slow down if no one's playing. There's not um, going to be enough going on. I mean, we've already seen it slow down, but like if they know their season isn't going to happen, then there's not going to be as many moves. There's not going to be as many things going on. And we're just going to see Donovan Mitchell playing uh, Call of Duty instead of, you know, right. scoring 70 points in a game or 60 points or whatever it was. Esports is going to get huge. Yeah. Esports for actual athletes will get huge, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some of the other proposals for this uh, Arizona uh, games that would, to with uh, COVID-19 in effect, uh, implementing an electronic strike zone to allow the plate umpire to maintain sufficient distance from the catcher I on the batter. distance the catcher. Baseball, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no mound visits from the catcher or pitching coach. So I guess managers what, okay. what if they can have a mound visit, but they just have to stand around the mound and then the pitcher stands on the rubber? Like they just stand like around <laughs> the mound. That could work. We uh, can do this. Well, you nope. can't call it baseball. It's not. Nope. It's nope. it's not baseball. Yeah. Make yeah, up a different you name. You can't steal a base because the bat, the um, player wouldn't be allowed to get close enough to tag you. So that yeah. would have to change. Uh, seven inning double headers, which an earlier than expected start date could allow baseball to come closer to full 162 games. Uh, regular use also, of on field of on-field microphones by players has an added bonus for TV viewers. Um, players sitting in the empty stand six feet apart, the recommended social distancing space instead of the dugout. Nice. Can't even sit in the dugout. Yeah, no yep. No matter what we get, if we get something back, it's not going to be the same sport. It'll be an it's adaptation that isn't as fun. Or mandatory. it'll be an asterisk next to it, next to yeah. it for all time. Like, yep, exactly. Mandatory cool. ghost runners. Yeah, it'll be like it'll be like when you ha- don't have enough people playing wiffle ball in your backyard, and then you have to have to have some like ghost runner on the base and let that guy yep. bat. I, it's it's well, just not gonna happen. You know what? Yeah, we're not gonna get it anyway. So does it really matter? No, I hate no, to be it's that. It's kind of funny that to negative. laugh at that they're even saying that though. No, when I like, saw it, I was like, there's no comical. way. There was, a, there was a handful of people that were, like, very serious about it, too. I was like, there's no way. It's May- not logical, really. We just got all these orders extended to say we must stay at home. There's no way baseball is going to start next yeah. month. No. All right. Um, moving on to football. I don't know how much football news there is, but I did see this. And again, this probably won't even end up mattering because are we going to have NFL training camps? Are we going to have an NFL season? But the Rams and Chargers are expected to share Hard Knocks this year. Um, that was reported by ESPN. Hard Knocks, obviously HBO's uh, inside look at the preseason football. Um, it's always funny. We talked about it on our show at the beginning of the season when it was the Browns. Um, no, the Raiders, sorry. Um, but we, they, they are saying that the Chargers and Rams would have to share it this year, so we'd have kind of a an expanded look, and it would be strange. But also, hard knocks probably won't happen because preseason training camps probably won't happen. Um, and if those don't happen, then the football season is just going to be later. So I don't know. But what's what do you guys think if if all this did happen, having two teams on hard knocks, how do you feel about that? Um. 
I was never that big into watching this show. I, I think I watched a few of the Browns episodes. I know you guys are pretty big into it. Um, I don't really know. Does it defeat the point of, like, highlighting the one team who has mad chaos going on that um, season? Yeah, the, the thing I, I have a problem Why with is that, teams? well, they're both in L.A. Or they'll both oh, be, like, okay. together, so it makes sense. But mm-hmm. But I don't think it's necessary because... Kind of the the best part about Hard Knocks is that you get an inside look at a team and you see like all kinds of stuff that's going on within that organization. Um, and so usually, like every year, players certain players get highlighted. The coach, like so, the Raiders, for instance, were this past season. We had the whole Antonio Brown saga going down, so they had all of that. They had John Gruden just being goofy. They had himself. You know, yeah, Derek Carr following him around everywhere he went and like talking to him all the time about like being his best friend. Basically, we had all kinds of stuff going on. That's a lot to fit in the storyline to begin with. If you have two teams, it just seems like they're they're gonna have to like cut out some stuff that could be potentially funny, or they're gonna have to like I don't know. Trying to switch back and forth between teams, follow multiple storylines on both teams just seems like a lot to go on. Whereas if we just stick to the one team, like I just feel like that's um, more enjoyable because it's it's less to follow, but it's also you get a more a deeper look into that specific team um, and see like all of their preseason games. You kind of start to feel like good about which players um, are making the team, and you you want to like know is this guy going to get cut? Is this guy going to make it like that kind of stuff? If you're following two teams, it just adds to how much you're trying to keep track of. And it seems to take away from kind of the whole thing because you're not getting as much of a look into one specific team. The way I see it, if you're a Chargers fan, this is the worst case scenario. Cause one of the big things that I like about hard knocks is you get to look uh, like a pretty good looking at the front office and how um, team teams handle like yeah. how the front office for, each team handles things. Um, and you're going to be directly compared to the Rams, who have a pretty solid front yeah. office. And their and coach is built a pretty decent awesome. team. Sean McVay is, yep. yeah. The Chargers, on the other hand, have been struggling for quite a few years now. So they, if you're a Chargers fan, this is the worst case scenario, because you're just going to get compared side to side, and you're going to realize how poorly run your team It's going to make you look that much worse than if you were on your own, because if you're on your own, people would just be like, ah, that's kind of funny. If you're right. compared to the Rams, they're going to be like, whoa, why did you do that when the Rams were able to do this? Yep. Like, they can p- yep. compare the timelines almost exactly, and it's going to make it well, a lot worse. There's going to be a free agent that. signing that both teams are going to need, and the Rams are going to end up with it, and the Chargers yeah. fans are going to be like, well, why didn't we even try very much? Yeah, why? Like, yeah. There's going to be a clear distinction. Yep. Yeah, so, so I think it should be it's a strange option. But again, who knows? Uh, I'm trying to be positive, but, you know, do we really even have a chance at seeing sports in the next year? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> unfortunately, I don't think but, so. Yeah, but unfortunately, probably not. All right, so I think that's what we've got for the show today. Um, I, got, I got one more thing for you okay. guys. Okay, Nick's got one this more is, thing. This is, uh, so this, I think this happened today or yesterday night. Um... Yeah, University of Wisconsin. So, athletes, what is it? Summer and spring sport athletes were granted another year of eligibility. Yep. University of Wisconsin struck that rule down and said, um, "You're not playing. Your your season's done. If you this Wait, was your what? senior year. Yep. So, if you were like a track senior, 
you're done. Done. You don't get another year. Baseball at the done. Brown. Yeah. Well, that's, they don't have baseball. They don't have yeah, baseball. Okay, but yeah. Um, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, I hadn't heard that at all. The reasoning behind that was, which irks me quite a bit. Um, you don't. So Barry Alvarez said the reason that we decided to do that was one for the safety of our players, which doesn't make a whole ton of sense. So that, whatever. And his second reasoning was um, the kids that are in the band or the kids that are want to study abroad, they don't get a, another year back to go and do the things that they want to do, so we don't feel that, like the athletes well, should get another year. We don't want any preferential treatment towards the athletes. But the, the athletes would still have to be students. They don't get to, like, not be that's a student. What, that's still what get. I was saying. So, like, I don't understand that If you that wanted either. to study abroad, you can still be a student and study abroad just because you finished your certain major. Like, that's crazy. That's a wild, that's, wild That move. was my... That, we're on the same page, Tom. That yeah. was my exact take. Wild the, move. Somehow he got one plus one equals three out of this, and yeah. everyone else is doing one plus one equals two. He, That's crazy. He skipped a step somewhere. I don't understand why why it's going down like that, and it, yeah. honestly, it frustrates me. But, yeah, I that mean, was it some... Should. And it frustrates I'm sure every, every athlete. athlete. That's why. Yeah. I, I would be, I'd be curious. Um, all right, so... Before we wrap up, we all finally have seen 1917. True, I forgot uh, about this. Yeah. Uh, first, I want to start off by what are we defining spoiler alerts? Is it some? Is it any point in the critical, movie? Or is critical, it any? No, critical to the storyline. So well, let's like just do death, the whole thing. Spoil. We'll just spoil the whole thing. Spoil the whole movie. Okay. Well, first, let's start off with our scores. So I watched it last night. Um, Xavier, you watched it two nights ago, I think, or three nights ago. Yeah. And Nick saw it a while ago. Um, my score, though, for what I gave it, it's the best one of all that we've seen so far. I found it the best of all of them. I gave it an 89. I still couldn't get into that 90 range. Um, that's reserved for like the best of the best. And it, I got an 89 though, because it was I was exhilarated. I was enjoying it the whole time. I was invested the whole time. Um, but it's still like there's just still certain things that I found convenient or found like. Okay, I can see how that happened, but like, kind of wish it went differently. Um, so 89, it was an awesome movie. I enjoyed it a bunch. And I love war movies, so I always enjoy those. I knew I was going to enjoy it. But um, yeah, so I gave an 89. We can do our scores, and then we can talk more about what actually happened. Um, I'm going to give it, I think it's the same. It's same or slightly higher than Ford versus Ferrari, so 87 or 87 and a half. Um, I did like it a lot. There are some times where I thought the movie was, like, too dark. Like, I couldn't, like, see. Uh, it wasn't, like, on the screen. I couldn't make up some of the images. Uh, but I like the storyline. I thought it was, like, jam-packed with, like, enough action. Yeah, a lot of action. Enough, uh, wanting to see, like, what was next. Like, where's he headed? What's the situation? Yeah, Nick, I think you've said your score before, but can you remind us? Um, I gave it a 91, which puts all it right. in the top 10 movie, my top 10 movies of all time. Dang. Um, I mean, it was it was awesome. It it was just beautifully shot, too. Oh, absolutely. Was, the story's great, but the way that it, the way that they cut it, where it seems like it's one flowing yeah. continuous you follow shot the, the whole entire time. time. 
Absolutely. And the scenes that the, the huge like battles they had, even like the small details just like felt so real yeah. that yeah, when we get into spoilers, it's And I almost wish I had seen it in the theaters. Like you said, you mentioned oh, it, it might yeah, be better uh, in the theaters. I would have loved to see that in the theaters because I enjoyed it so much. But if it was a massive screen, surround sound, like all that, that would have been even more incredible. And the what you said about the way it was shot, uh, there's been a few movies I've seen. Birdman um, is one, and then um, Grand Budapest Hotel is a Wes Anderson movie. And both of those are just like they're creatively um, shot. Birdman is similar to 1917 where it seems like it's just one long scene. You basically the camera just follows characters and it never cuts or it looks like it never cuts. So I enjoyed that one a lot. And then um The Grand Budapest Hotel from Wes Anderson, it's like always like perpendicular to a wall. So it basically looks like it's shooting 90 degree angle the entire time and that I just find it so like uh like it's visually appealing basically. So I always love movies when they do something creative like that too. So um, yeah, definitely something I enjoyed about it with just the way it was shot. All right. into spoilers, Xavier, you had one that you mentioned earlier, bring it up. Cause it was. Yeah. Uh, so there was one scene in the movie. Uh, they were obviously there's different barricades. Uh, soldiers had to get across during wars and a lot of barbed wire. The guy, is holding it for his friend but when he tries to cross through by holding it and then letting it go it slams and then a piece of the barbed wire goes straight into the palm of his hand and then he it's bleeding a lot he wraps it but while he goes to the next point he uh he's in like a divot in the ground uh before his friend and his friend kind of bumps him but in this divot it's like a dead body and I cringed watching And you watched that. Rat crawl out of the dead body yeah, before. Yeah, we saw yeah. Rat crawl out, and he, he gets pushed by his friend who slides into the divot and puts his hand straight into the middle of this guy's stomach. I know oh, it's a movie, yeah. but I, I cringed. I was like, I oh, did this guy is dead. But he... Yeah, I thought he was going to, like, die of an infection in the movie. Like, <laughs> it was so disgusting. Other... That other was... um. Big, big time, uh, what I found, I was like, this is convenient and kind of um, through, I don't know, it didn't take away from the movie because it was still a really cool scene, but like, so he he jumps down the waterfall, you know, and he's like riding through the water, he comes down a second waterfall and like crawls out of the water over some dead bodies and into like this forest, and he just hears some singing, so he like crawls, he walks through the forest, finding, following the voices of the of the person singing, and then it's just like the exact troop he was looking for. It's like at yeah, one, that was... <laughs> at one point I was like, he has gone on so many random twists and turns. How does he even know what direction he's going? Because spoiler alert, the guy who actually knew where he was going, the brother of the guy that was in the other um, battalion, I think it was dies so the the two characters one of them dies and the other one is like he knows less about the map he knows less about where they're headed he but he told the other guy he's like okay i know where i'm going i know this is the direction and then he goes on and he goes through so much random stuff before that that it's like how would you have any idea what direction you're even walking anymore where you're at and he just walks through the forest and boom there's like exactly where he was going it just seems so random and so convenient but i get it because like it was kind of necessary and also the scene of him like walking up into this group that where the guy was singing and he just sits down next to the yeah that was awesome that was a great scene i enjoyed it in the theaters also i was like how convenient was that (laughs) 
Yeah, right. What did you guys think about the part where the plane crashes and then um Oh, I didn't expect that. Main character, the one main character Riley pulled him out. Pulls the guy out of the yeah. burning plane. This is an a German airplane crashes and they pull the German pilot out of the airplane. I was like, why are they doing that? It doesn't make I like I kind of understood why one of them was doing it. The the brother I kind of understood cuz he seemed like the nice guy already. So it was like he just didn't want to see someone die in a plane crash. He was going to like help him out. Um, I was like, why are they doing that though? Because it obviously didn't end well. Um, but also it just confused me. Well, when he pulled him out of the plane and then they like laid him down and he was like, go, let's go get help. We need to save this guy. I was like, wait, 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 yeah. this is not going to end well for you, man. Yeah. And then this is an enemy. Gets dead. So. And then in spoiler alert, yeah, he, st- the, uh, the pilot stabs him and he ends up passing or dying. So like, <laughs> obviously it was a strange choice to begin with, and then, like, it didn't go well from there at all. Also, that one, there's an, there's another scene that I was just, like, it was, like, very humanizing in the sense, like, when people get put in, like, ridiculous situations or extremely stressful situations, they do crazy things. When the tr- when that, when that he's in the back of the truck with all those guys, yeah, and then it gets stuck in the mud, and he's out there, like, by himself like, trying to push yeah. it. He literally and just like, met all of these people, too. He just yeah. got in their truck. He doesn't know any of them. Yeah. He gets out of the truck and thinks he can just push it by himself. And I was just like, okay. I Like, I know what he's trying to do because he feels like I know, like, he knows what he has to because he, he's extremely stressed out. He needs to, like, yeah. go get this message delivered before it's too late. But, like, him trying to push it by himself, I was just like, oh, yeah, this isn't going to, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Uh, the scene where you were talking about the, the guy scrambling through, like, the ruined city. I was watching that, and I, the whole time I was thinking, like, uh, people are young in wars now, but people would lie about their age to partake in wars yeah. back then. And I know if I was in that scene, and, real, like, obviously it's portrayed by real scenarios, um, but, like, each time you are running back and forth, not to be scared, like, like crazy because one turn someone could be literally just standing right, yeah, there. right there you're done you're done other one more and thing it's like super that, dark the whole time that's one of the yeah. scenes that bothered me i'm like i can't yeah. see half of what's going right on. right before that right before it got dark so he's cross like after he gets out of the truck and he's like crossing that bridge or whatever the broken bridge and the guy starts shooting at him when he goes up the stairs opens the door shoots at the guy and the guy shoots at him and he like flies down the stairs i was like i know it isn't over but he just died right like I was like, yeah, he just I got shot, shot in the head. Yeah. How is he? Yeah. How is this movie gonna continue? Because it looked like he got shot in the head. He goes flying down the stairs and his helmet came off. I was like, what just happened? Yeah, it was a cool scene. Like it was like stressful, but also I was like, okay, so is the movie over? Like he just looks like he got shot and it, it's over. There was a girl in my theater, um, in the scene where the rat sets off the like when they rigged that tripwire. Uh, yeah, tripwire to like blow the whole thing i don't i don't know how she didn't see it coming but when it blew up she screamed so loud it was hilarious i mean it made me jump but i i mean wasn't expecting it, was, it but kind I of like, was i was like okay i know at some point they, they get pulled out like i know from the the trailer that they get pulled like the one guy pulls the other guy out of like the rubble and i was like this kind of yeah. seems like the type of like rocks that he gets pulled Situation, out of yeah. so i was kind of expecting an explosion but she obviously wasn't and she just screamed so loud 
yeah, so awesome movie. We all gave it high 80s up to the 90s for Nick, 91. I'm sure I yep. probably would have been up there if I saw it in theaters, 89, because um, I watched it in my bedroom. So, uh, I mean, awesome movie. We all enjoyed it. Um, and I don't know if we have any more movies that are – I think that's all the movies that were on my list. So we've seen all the ones that we left school, me saying I needed to watch before we could talk about. Um, yeah. Well, and you're, so, you're like caught up now. They're not releasing any more movies. Yeah, true. Right There's, <laughs> yeah, true. So we'll, we'll have to um, look in the uh, old old movies yeah. or ones. We'll start. Let's or, start suggesting uh, movies to each other. Maybe uh, the Will Smith and Martin Lawrence one could be an option. True, maybe. We'll we'll start suggesting things to each other, and then we'll all watch a movie and and talk about it. So, um, that's it for this show. Upcoming next, we've got a interview that we did with Greg Gumbel. Awesome interview, um, super enjoyable. So that'll end off our show. Um, we thank you guys for listening, and we'll put in Greg Gumbel right here. Today, I would like to welcome a 1967 Loris College grad and current CBS broadcaster, Mr. Greg Gumbel. Thank you for joining us on our KLCR show today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, today, I just want to begin with a couple questions regarding your time at Loris College. And from my understanding, uh, in high school, you played some sports. When did Loris College come in the picture? Well, I was um, my entire senior year in high school, I was a candidate for the Air Force Academy. I really wanted to be an astronaut, and I thought that uh, that going to the Air Force Academy would be the best way to get there and to do that. So I was a candidate throughout um, my senior year and into the summer, and as you probably know, um, nominations for the service academies are left to congressmen, and I requested the nomination from for the uh, representative um, from uh, from my district in Chicago, and he made his decisions by way of competitive exams. So he had about 500 applicants from his district, and he put us all in a room downtown Chicago, and we took a test. And he took the top four of us and sent us to Chanute Air Force Base down in Rantoul, Illinois. And we went through more tests, both mental and physical, and um, we cut it down to three, down to two, and I lost. And everybody said, well, you should try it again next year because you came so close. And I fully intended to. Um, but meanwhile, I had to find uh, a place to go to school. And my dad was one who uh, collected for my brother and me um, various uh, brochures from various schools. And I was flipping through the Morris brochure one day. And I thought I liked it. And I applied and I was accepted. And this was pretty late in the summer, like July. And uh, the, uh, the two things two things that happened, one, I really liked Morris. And number two, Vietnam became really popular. And so I thought, do I really want to be coming out of the Air Force Academy at a time like this? And um, I'm pretty good with answers to my own questions. So I said, no, I don't. So I stayed at Morris and, uh, for all four years and enjoyed it immensely. It, it changed my life. Morris changed my life. 
Yeah, that's I from all college Loris alumni. It seems like I I rarely ever hear bad experiences, and the point where you uh, were accepted late later in uh, the summer, the same holds true. I I know I wasn't sure where I was gonna go, and I applied in the late summer senior year, and they accepted right away, and I was like, I'm I'm all in. Yeah, you know, school and, and, and college life is different things to different people. For me, and, and this is, I learned more than any subject in any classroom at Morris, I learned how to get along with people. I learned how to interact with them. I, I learned how to speak to people and speak with people and listen to them and understand the points of view of other people. Um, that's not necessarily what happens at all schools. I liked Morris for the fact that it was as small a school as it is. Because by the time I was leaving school, I junior, senior year, I was I knew everybody's name. Everybody was on a first name basis in school, and, and I pretty much knew everybody. This was back this was back when uh, Morris was all men. This was before <clears throat> merging with with Clark, and um, and and I think that that having to to be away from home, to make your own decisions. And to interact with other people is the best thing that could have ever happened to me, and that's why that's why I call it a life changing experience, at least for me. So, uh, as you said, you were uh, interested in you know being an astronaut, going to the Air Force. What what made you decide to study English when you got to Loris? What made me decide to do what? Study English. Um, <laughs> I actually switched my major about three or four times. Um, ultimately, ultimately, I decided to to uh, uh, major in English because I enjoyed English. Uh, I've always enjoyed it, and I've always respected, for the most part, uh, a lot of my English professors. And I thought, well, maybe that's one thing I might like to do. <clears throat> but when I came out of school, I ended up um, going back to a place that I had worked during the summer because they asked me to come back and see them once I had my degree. And they put me into their advertising department. And so I uh, I was in advertising for a chain of clothing stores in Chicago for about a year. When my was up and I went in and I asked them for a raise, they offered me a very, very minimal raise. At about the same time, another Duhawk and a very good friend of mine who was a year ahead of me, uh, Larry Skolanik, was leaving his his uh, job at Time Incorporated, and he was going back to Dubuque to go into business, into the jewelry business with his dad. And I, um, and, and he recommended me for his job at Time Inc. I went over there, and I became an assistant buyer of paper and printing for Time Incorporated. <clears throat> and then about, oh, about six months after I got there, my boss was promoted, and so I became the head of the department, and I was there for about two and a half, three years. Um, that's when the Selective Service began to hassle me and try to, to draft me, and I was doing my best to, to avoid having to do that, um, but it cost me my job at Time Incorporated. And um, so I began to look around again, and I became a sales representative for a hospital supply company. And it was while I was doing the hospital supply sales thing, which I was really good at, but I really hated, uh, I heard about uh, the audition for a weekend sportscaster in Chicago at uh, Channel 5, WMAQ-TV. 
So I flew into Chicago and I auditioned with a couple hundred other guys. They said, don't call us, we'll call you. And three weeks later, they called. So that's how I got from Loris into broadcasting. When you were at Loris, you this job at uh, Channel 5 in Chicago wasn't your, necessarily your first time broadcast uh, in our email that you're a KL, KLOR host, it's now KLCR. Uh, yeah. what, ki- what was that like for you? Uh, what kind of show was it that you ran? Uh, first of all, first of all, it was just it was brief. It probably didn't last more than a couple of months. Um, it was, and I, it was just I was just basically a disc jockey. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know anybody, excuse me, anybody who knows anything about me knows I'm the biggest fan of the Rolling Stones on the planet. And I kept hearing, "You're playing too much Rolling Stones. You're playing too much Rolling Stones." And I was telling them, you can't play enough Rolling oh, Stones. You can't <laughs> play too much. Um, but, but, oh, God, I was, I was doing, oh, I, I, got, I got into such trouble. I was doing dedications uh, to the, the girls at Clark. And the dedications were the Stone song, Let's Spend the Night Together. And uh, I, I forget what the priest was, but he came up and he said, okay, you have to stop that. <laughs> so, so that brought that to a halt. So I didn't do it for very long. But when I went to Channel 5 in Chicago, I truly had no broadcast experience. Um, nor do I think that it's absolutely necessary. It can help. I don't think there's a question about that. There are there are people who have studied broadcasting and gone into it as a profession. There are also those who have studied it and didn't make it for whatever reason. Uh, my brother didn't study broadcasting in school. My brother was a Russian history major in college. And I came out of Morris with an English degree, and and I think that uh, I, in, in many ways, you either have the ability to speak publicly to someone, to an audience, or you don't. Um, it certainly can be worked on, but for a lot of people, it doesn't work out. I'll give you a perfect example of someone for whom it didn't work was uh, Lynn Swan, the former wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Great guy nice guy, worked hard at studying in school, took some courses for it, came out, was a sideline reporter, I think, for Monday Night Football on uh, ABC, and it just didn't work. There are people who have studied broadcasting, and for them it just didn't work. I think Steve Garvey, the former Dodger first baseman, falls into that same basket where, where he tried really hard to learn the trade, and there are others, like myself, who were fortunate enough to just fall into something backwards and come up smelling like a rose, um, were able to do it. And for whatever reason, whether you're good at it or not, the bottom line is that the audience like you. Because the audience will not like someone that they don't enjoy. I don't. There are people that I will not listen to or watch on TV, and it makes me turn the channel. So I, um, so, so I think that in many ways, it's a lucky thing, and and there are some people who are uh, who I think are naturally good at it rather than being educated with it. Mm-hmm. Um, going off of that a little bit, talking about your ex- more experiences at Loris, can you uh, go maybe tell a couple stories or your favorite moment of your baseball career at Loris? Oh, my favorite my favorite part of my baseball career was really my coach. Um, his name was Jim Smart Jesse, and um, he and I we we got along well when he was my coach and when I was a player. And um, he, he made he made on me uh, shortly after I left Morris. Um, my dad passed away, and co- 
coach was uh, like another dad to me. We kept in touch. He used to call me up after he saw me on the air in Chicago and critique my, my jacket or my tie or, or something silly. Um, but we, we got to be uh, we got to be really close. I will tell you a story that um, I've only shared not only shared really with a few people. I um, we went to Joliet, Illinois on a road trip to play Lewis University. And um, I knew a girl who went to school at St. Francis College in Joliet and wrote her a letter and told her that I was going to be there. And she said, great, let's get together. And I said, fine. And I thought after we got checked into our hotel, we'd be able to sneak out and, and, and have a drink together. And meanwhile, uh, one of the pitchers on the team and one of the infielders on the team says, hey, does she have two friends? So after Coach runs the check, three of us sneak out, and um, we meet these three gals, and basically we just kind of danced around town, going here, going there. One day, like to another five o'clock in the morning, we're sitting in a diner having breakfast. <laughs> it's the it's game day, by the way, it's five o'clock in the morning, and uh, one of the guys looks out the window and says, "Isn't that Coach?" And we look out the window and coach just sitting behind the wheel of one of the school station wagons. And he's not smiling. He's not happy. <laughs> and we said, uh, we've got to go. So we got up and um, we, we left and we climbed into the car. And he is as stern-faced as I've ever seen him. And he says, did you leave anything unpaid for? And we said, no, sir. So we, we drive back to the hotel. So now it's about... 6, 6.15, he wakes everybody up and he brings them down to his hotel suite. And we're all in there and he tells everybody what we did. Well, you know, they know it. However, they go, oh, you know. <laughs> so he proceeds to walk back and forth and lecture us, absolute lecture and it wasn't pretty, and he'd look at me, he'd, especially you. You call yourself a team captain. You call yourself our MVP. You're nothing. Why would you do that? How could you do that? And he goes on and on and on and on. And he finally ends up with me because you know, I was the ringleader. And he said, uh, you haven't been asleep. You haven't rested. You've been out gallivanting around. He said, I should sit your ass down for a month. But you know what I'm going to do? I know your parents are going to be here today, and I'm going to go out there and let you make a fool of yourself. So we go out, and we go out, and we had a doubleheader against Lewis. The fact that I went six for eight in the doubleheader is beside the point. Whoa! It really is because because um, first game was over, and we win. And I walk up behind the dugout between games, and I say hi to my parents. And we're talking, and I look over my shoulder, and here comes Coach. And I'm like, oh, God. And he walks up, and he shakes hands with my dad. He says, Judge Gumble, Mrs. Gumble, how are you? Good to see you again. And eventually my dad gets around to going, how is he doing? And I thought, this is, it. This is just a bone crusher. And my coach said, we are so proud of him. He is everything that we could ever want here at Morris College. And I went down to the dugout, and I went all the way to the other end, and I sat in the corner, and I cried. Second 
game begins. Uh, first two guys make an out. I hit third in the order. And I triple to right center field. And I come sliding in the third. <clears throat> and coach is the third base coach. And he walks over and he wiggles two fingers at me and he says, two outs now. And I looked at him and I said, that was for you. And he gave me this mean look and he turned and he walked away. He turned his back on me and he walked in the other direction. Years and years later, when he passed away and I went to his funeral, uh, his wife and I were talking and she was just so great. And I was telling her that story. And she says, oh, I know all about it. I said, he told you? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, he told me everything. And I said, and he just, he was still so angry at me because he turned and he walked away. And she said, Greg, he turned his back on you and walked away so that you wouldn't see him cry. And it, it kind of broke my heart again. Um, but, you know, and it was just so nice to hear and nice to know. That's the kind of relationship that I had with with my coach. And I had I had game-winning hits and game-winning home runs and diving catches and all that good stuff. Um, he could never teach me to hit a curveball. But the fact is that he was as close to me as, as anyone could be and was, like, second only to my own father. So that's my baseball story at Morris. I appreciate that. That's such a touching story. We, I always love to hear uh, like personal stories between whether it's a professor, a coach at Loris, because one thing that seems to stay consistent is the relationships that uh, the people in uh, the leadership roles seem to really hone their skills and make a memorable impression on the students. I agree with you. I think that, I think that there are people who I would hope that students going through school would learn to appreciate that. Um, there was a legendary dean of men when I was there. His name was Father Eugene Klitsch. And people were literally afraid of him because he was about six foot seven, six six or six seven, and probably weighed a buck ninety at most. He was just a tall drink of water, but he was just scary. And um, I, I just, I, I would slip up here and there and he would call me down to the office and one time I started he was going to turn me out of school and I, I had gotten a slip under my door a report to the dean of men and I walked in and I stood there and I handed him the slip and he looks at it and he smiled and he said go have a good day Greg and walked out <laughs> those, those kinds of things are memorable to me and probably probably nothing to him although maybe calculated but but it's things like that more than anything else, things like that that I recall from my days at Morris. We have a few questions uh, relating uh, to your career in the broadcasting booth. Um, sure. we, we're looking. You have quite the range of sports and teams you've covered. You've covered football, basketball, baseball, uh, the Olympics. Is there one certain one that you were like your favorite or most appreciative to be able to do? Yeah, I think that, you know, like I, I am, like I'm not a huge fan of the Olympics, uh, but I do appreciate the fact that I've been able to work three Olympic games. Um, the um, 92 in uh, Alberville, France, uh, 94 in Lillehammer, Norway, and 96 in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, 
probably that the one that meant most to me, I did Super Bowl 35 and Super Bowl 38. Uh, Super Bowl 35 was in Tampa when the, uh, uh, when the Ravens beat the Giants, and Super Bowl 38 was in Houston where the Patriots beat the uh, Carolina Panthers. Uh, I think those those were pretty significant. I, I always I always felt I always feel privileged to do a football game on a Sunday afternoon. The baseball games that I've done at, at times for both CBS and NBC. Uh, gosh, I hosted the NFL today for four years with Terry Bradshaw, and we just we just had a great time. And I thought we made our mark in the studio show area. And you know, of course, up until this year. Um, had been hosting March Madness since 1998, and and that came to a screeching halt, of course, as as has everything else. But those are those are things that I I readily realize that not everyone gets a chance to do, and that there are many many broadcasters across the country who would give their right arm to be able to do something like March Madness, or to be able to do play by play of a football game, or a major league baseball game, or, or to be able to have a role in the Olympics. And so I, uh, I recognize that and I appreciate it. Those, those are the things that I've been able to do. And that's had a network level. And I worked at, at Channel 5 in Chicago for seven and a half years doing local sports. <clears throat> and local sports was okay for what it was. But, but local sports isn't very important to the TV stations involved. It's almost the last thing in the show. And you don't get very much time. And they're only interested if the local team... I, I was screaming at people until I was blue in the face. Like, they would cut down on coverage of the Cubs or the White Sox once they were eliminated from the pennant race. And I'd say, you don't understand. Fans don't care. Fans still want to know about their teams and their highlights and their results. And they could never understand that. So once I realized that, I started looking for a, a way to get away from uh, from local news. And that's when ESPN came calling. So I, I went to ESPN at about January of 81, I believe, and I spent five and a half years there. Yeah, and so you, you mentioned uh, getting to, to be broadcast March Madness, and um, obviously we, we missed out on that this year. Um, what what was kind of the process of, uh, you know, the talks of, of maybe it being postponed or canceled and then it being canceled, and, and kind of how did that affect uh, your, your day-to-day? Obviously, you would have been uh, jam-packed, busy, uh, the last few weeks if, if it had gone on, but, um, kind of what was the process of that and what were you hearing and, and what are your thoughts on, obviously they had to do it, but, uh, you know, going forward and not releasing the brackets and such, just kind of what you felt. We were, we were, we were ready to do selection Sunday, right up until Thursday or Friday before, uh, selection Sunday. Thursday, I think, because I would usually fly to New York on Friday and then do studio show Saturday, studio show Sunday, and then the selection show after all the basketball was away on Sunday. But we began to have conversations, we me with management, about what was happening. And the first, I think the first indicator was when Duke announced that they weren't going to take part in any postseason basketball or, or, you know, whether that's their conference tournament or the national tournament. And considering that uh, their athletic director, Kevin White, who, by the way, is a former Duhok, uh, was also the chairman of the selection committee, I thought that was a pretty good indicator. So we began talking about whether or not the tournament was going to be canceled. And then we started talking about the selection show. And then CBS said, well, 
stand by, we may do the selection show from Atlanta. And then on Friday, and if they made the decision that the selection show was not going to be happening, neither was the tournament. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 I've always told people that the, the NCAA tournament, especially the first weekend, especially the first two nights, are as difficult a stretch as any that I've ever experienced because there are uh, 16 games. And, and they all they begin at noon and they don't wrap at times until around one thirty or 2 in the morning. Then you go back to the hotel, you grab a couple of hours sleep and uh, come back and you do the same thing again the next day. 16 more games, then 8 on Saturday and 8 on Sunday. And while it is hectic, it is something that Clark Kellogg and Seth Davis and I have enjoyed doing for a long time together. And we talk several times on the phone during those times that, hey, we're supposed to be in the studio right now. And, and then we, we touched base uh, on Monday. We said, we're supposed to be in Atlanta tonight getting ready for championship night. It is a, it's a weird feeling when you're expecting to do something and it gets yanked away through no fault of your own. Um, but then, you know, to be to be realistic about it, it's not just us It's that's missing it. It's the coaches, it's the teams, it's the schools, it's the fans. Everybody is missing it, but but having been so close to it for so long, yeah, it was a, it was a weird feeling, and uh, it'll just. I'm hoping it'll be just that much better a feeling when we all get together again next year. Mm -hmm. And you talked about uh, working, and you've worked with a bunch of different co-anchors um, and and people like that. Do you have a favorite person that you've ever called a game with? Well, you know, I don't. I'm I'm one of the fortunate people. I don't recall having worked with someone that I didn't love, well, maybe one. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe one. one. Um, uh, the guy who worked at Channel 5, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's unimportant. <laughs> uh, but, but the various people that I had a chance to work with, in the NFL Today, for instance, uh, Terry Bradshaw and Dan Marino and Boomer Esiason uh, at NBC, Mike Ditka and Joe Gibbs and Chris Collinsworth uh, doing college basketball I did NBA and college basketball for four years with uh, Quinn Buckner. Then, uh, when I went to NBC, I did NBA basketball with Bill Walton and Steve Jones. And then coming back to CBS, gosh, the football, I mean, I, I, Phil Sims and Dan Deardorff, and now Trent Green has been my partner for six years. And those are just quality, quality people. And, uh, and, and we, you know, I, think, I think the true barometer is that we all still keep in touch with each other. Uh, Bill Walton, probably the biggest character of them all. <laughs> um, but, but we knew that even back from his playing days. My favorite story that he told was when he first got to UCLA, he was, you know, he's a California kid. And he's a typical hippie radical with his hair down to his shoulders. And on the first day of workouts, and he was highly recruited. I mean, he was 6'11 and just could shoot and run. He's a terrific athlete. And so John Wooden, the UCLA coach, has been standing up and he walks by and he stops and he looks at Bill Walton and he looks at his hair and he says, you'll need to get a haircut. And Bill Walton says, well, coach, while I appreciate what you say, I am my own person and I have my own beliefs and what I want, what I like. And so I feel I can't do that. And John Wooden looked at him and he said, we'll miss you around here, William. And he walked on and the next day, Bill Walton showed up with a haircut. Uh, with with uh, March Madness not happening, 
how do you do you think they made the right decision to not release the brackets? I'm assuming they were already made and uh, ready to be presented. Do you think it was a good thing no. to not present them? No, no. First of all, first of all, the brackets are not determined until that's until I announce them. Until I announce them at six o'clock on on that Sunday evening, and I don't get them until sometime between five fifteen and six o'clock. Wow. Sometimes they arrive early, but what they do is they arrive they arrive from the selection committee, which is sequestered in a hotel and watching the last few games of the day before they make their final choices. So we don't have the luxury of having those teams available to us. There are there have been times that I have gone through that selection show and announced teams. And I only got the the brackets five minutes, six, eight minutes before the show went on the air. Um, and it's it's kind of a you know that that kind of makes your heart pound a little bit as a broadcaster that you're going you're going on the air and you're really not knowing what's there until you actually say it, until you actually know it. Um, but that's that's really that's the story. And, and now I you know I know there's been a there's been an outcry of well why don't you put out a bracket anyway? And I'm not. I'm not big on that because because I would say what's the point, you know? So so Middle Tennessee can Middle Tennessee State can say, hey, we would have been a five seed, or you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. I don't think that matters that much. I think that the whole the whole story of the tournament having had to go to by the side of the road is much more important than than, than where a team might have been placed, especially if the teams aren't able to act on that. So I, I think that would have been a little bit of a wasted. Uh, uh, wasted measure. Definitely. I have two more questions before we wrap things up. Uh, you've mentioned your love for Rolling Stones. Is there uh, a top song that you probably listen to more than any of the others? Of theirs? Yes. Oh, I think Brown Sugar is the greatest rock and roll song ever made. Brown Sugar. Oh, yeah. Um, and my, by the way, um, you talked about the big moments in my career. Um, the biggest moment in my life was when I got to meet them and get to know them. Oh, wow. Um, I, was, I was at home in the early 90s, and uh, my phone rang, and this woman says, uh, uh, is this Greg Gummel? And I said, yeah. And she says, can you hold a moment for, uh, oh, his name slips my mind now, but he's the editor and publisher of Rolling Stone magazine. So he comes on the he comes on the phone and he introduces himself. I said, "Yeah, I know who you are. How can I help you?" And he says, "I think I'm the one who can help you. Every interview that I read about you, you talk about what a big fan you are of Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones." I said, "Yeah, I love Keith. I love the Stones." And he said, "Well, I just thought maybe it was time for you to meet." So he arranged for me to go up to Philadelphia when they were on the road tour. And I went up to Philadelphia, and I was met at the front door and taken backstage and introduced to the band. You know, and, and then at one point, uh, Keith's Keith PR gal uh, stuck her head through the door and said, Greg, come on with me. And of course, the other guys just gave me all kinds of crap. You know, yeah, we know where you're going. Go ahead. Don't mind us. And I followed her down the hallway and into a dressing room. And Keith was sitting on a black leather sofa. And there was candles burning, there was Chuck Berry music playing, there was a pool table there. And he this was a tour in which he wore high-top Converse. And he would either wear a green pair or a yellow pair or an orange pair. So he had them in front of him and he, he points to them and he looks up at me and he goes, 
Woody, which ones do you think? <laughs> I said, I don't know. And he stood up and he said, so you're the big Stones fan? And I said, oh, yeah. And he said, how long? And I said, well, at the time, I said, 26 years. And he said, he, he dropped down on one knee and he grabbed my hand and kissed it. And he said, bless you. And um, we talked for a little bit and he took, he took me on a tour backstage. Uh, he, we, walk into, we walk into a room and in, in the far corner is a woman with long blonde hair. It's all legs and blonde hair. And he points and he says, do you know Jerry Hall? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Jerry Hall was Mick Jagger's girlfriend at the time. Um, and we introduced it, went all around backstage, and then he ended up uh, getting me a seat at um, Sixth Row Center. And um, I remember it's a, it's a given at the Stones show that halfway through, Mick introduces the band, and Keith is the last one that he introduces because Keith is going to sing a couple of songs. So Keith sang a song, and uh, he's waiting for his guitar change. One of the guys is going to bring his guitar, and he looked at me, and he pointed at me, and he says, Greg, give me the microphone. And my mouth fell open. And this woman sitting next to me said, I don't believe that. I said, I don't believe it either. But it was kind of cool. And, and ever since then, ever since then, I've, uh, you know, I've kept in touch with the band. Chuck Lavelle, their keyboards guys are really good friends. Uh, Ron, I have, I have uh, uh, you know, Ron Wood paints. If you ever go to, uh, to the internet and take a look, he is a tremendous, tremendous artist. And I've got uh, a painting hanging in my office here at home that he did. Uh, it's called Keith and Ronnie on stage. And I just, I just love him to death. And um, I, I've told anybody, I have never, I have not missed. I have attended at least one show on every single North American tour since 1965. And uh, and they're my favorite. And Brown Sugar is my favorite song. And I told Charlie Watts one day, it just crushed me. I know you guys tour and you play the same songs over and over and over. But, but Charlie had a quote once where he said, if I have to play Brown Sugar one more time, and I'm like, oh, why did he have to play that one? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, it still is. The final question I have for you today is, what your first, it, from what I've read, you have absolutely loved baseball. We're big baseball fans. Actually, two of us are White Sox fans, and I read that you are also a White Sox fan. Do you still follow the team? I do. Uh, you know, when you uh, when I went into broadcasting, I I tried not to I tried not to maintain an allegiance because you don't ever want that to creep into your mm-hmm. into your broadcasting into the game. <clears throat> I do remember, however, I was doing. Uh, I was doing a playoff game at Comiskey Park, um, and I was with uh, Jim Cott, and my sideline guy was in the stand, and he was talking to Jerry Reinsdorf, who was the who was the owner of the White Sox. And uh, when he was finishing, when he was fin- when we were, he finished, and we went to commercial, I said to, to my sideline guy, uh, "Tell Jerry I said hi," and he told him hi, and then he comes back and he says, "Jerry says he hopes your favorite team wins," <laughs> which was pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, you know, yeah, I grew up being a White Sox fan. My brother was the Cub fan. My dad was the referee. Um, and, uh, and and I, I will still take a peek at their box score every now and then. But especially especially when players change, um, it's hard to continue to say you're a fan of a team when the same people are gone. Uh, it's the same thing with the Chicago Bears. Walter Payton and I were just very, very good friends for a long time. And when he retired and then when he passed away, 
uh, I didn't see any reason to continue to, to follow the Chicago Bears just because they were from Chicago. Um, but it's it's nice, and I think that a lot of people, for a lot of people, that's important. But for me, it wasn't. I see. I I want to say I appreciate you taking we 35 minutes. That's a that's a ton, and I know you're a busy guy. We thank you so much for coming on our show today, Mr. Greg Gumble, and it's always great talking to another Loris College alum. Hey guys, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, being asked on, and uh, I hope you guys get through this okay. Stay safe and be well, and uh, best wishes to you. Okay. To you as well.